If you have your Bibles, uh, we are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew today. Actually, not just today, for a little while. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series um, today um, in uh, this Gospel. Uh, in your Bibles, if you open it to the middle, you end up kind of in Psalms. Uh, if you keep turning to the right, you go through some big books, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then you start cruising through some little ones, uh, like Zechariah and stuff like that, and you end up in Matthew. It's about this way through, um, this far through. And we're just going to be at the beginning, just to turn there. Uh, so here's the deal. Uh, I, well, here's why. Sometimes people ask me how I pick or think through what to preach on, and I always feel uh, bad for them when they ask because it's not a short answer. Right? It's, like a, it's like I was watching somebody cook Indian food last night, and I was like, who has, like, there's so many spices and so many little things, and like, there's just like so much. I was like, this seems, oh, it's so beautiful. And I was, that's what I feel like. There's like a thousand little caveats of how we think through and talk through what we're gonna, I'm going to preach through. And so it has to do with like using the, using the, um, the, the, church calendar and, and how it works, making sure that we, we are pushing and preach things I don't want to preach. Preaching through entire books of the Bible is the primary way that we want to preach. And so all these different things that come into play, what's going on in the world, what's going on in our lives, and sometimes you, have to, you need to do topical things. I call them doctrinal things where we talk about a, to- a topic and trace it through Scripture. But the primary way that we want to talk about Scripture here, because it teaches us how to read Scripture, and it teaches us the value of it and gives us this portrait is to walk all the way through a book of the Bible. So why Matthew? I realized a while back uh, in our planning um, that I have not taught through, we have not taught through a gospel at BCC since 2011. Um, I think I'm prone to, out of, probably out of pride, right, to go find like some obscure book and like preach out of it. It's like, you know what we're going to do? Leviticus forever. Like that's the kind of thing that I'm just prone to do, you know? And, and so I think maybe, maybe, maybe some pride in there. But just sitting back and somebody said, they're like, you know, this is, the, this is the life of Jesus. It's what he said, what he did, and who he was. We should talk about that. And I'm like, you know what? That guy's right. I, I gotta, we need to do a better job. So Matthew just jumps straight onto the list of things that we wanted to tackle. And so we're going to walk through this book, uh, uh, this gospel, because it, it, it's in here is the story of who Jesus is. In here is what he did uh, and, and who he was. All of that is here. Now today is going to be a little bit unique in this series. Um, I like to, at the very beginning of a series, to do a big picture overview, right? It's really easy to get lost in the details, you know, and miss the big picture. So I like to start and sometimes end with this big picture overview of what we're doing and why we're doing it, or what we're about to jump into. So today is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be kind of like drinking from a fire hose, and that's okay. We'll fill in the details later. I said that earlier, and uh, somebody goes, so like every week. I'm like, hey, that wasn't nice. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, so just, like, I'm going to throw a lot at you, but it's okay, because we're going to come back and we're going to fill in the pieces over the next rest of your life that we're in Matthew. So uh, this is where we're going to be today. So Matthew is one of... The four books that what we call in in what we call in the Bible the Gospels. There's four of them. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we call those four books Gospels. That's the the genre that they are. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, are kind of a lot alike. They uh, seem to have known about each other, or at least aware, um, and and they seem to be very similar. Uh, If you're collecting uh, nerd words, uh, they're the synoptic Gospels, right? Uh, And then there's John, and John is just different. John is just, I mean, like other people start kind of like the beginning of Jesus' life a little bit, and then like John is just goes back in the beginning. Like John, he's just very high Christology. He's beautiful. It's very different. A lot of times, one of the things, the first people are like, I want to read the Bible. What should I read? And I go, read John. You know? Don't start in numbers. 
You know, read John, you know? And, uh, and so it's just this beautiful, beautiful book. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell different stories, and they, they draw from different sources. I'm sorry, they draw from the same source, Jesus' life, to tell us different things. Uh, Jesus did a lot of different stuff. Matter of fact, John tells us twice that he did an insane amount of stuff. Uh, in John 20, he says near the end of what John is writing, I think he feels like him drawing to the end of what he has to say. And so he says it twice. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that I didn't even have time to write down. You know? And then in the last chapter, near the very, very end, the last verse, he says this, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I don't think the world itself could contain all of the books that would be filled. He's just like, look, man, like, I'm only giving you a snapshot. I'm telling you what I can, you know, uh, paper is expensive, right? And so he's just filling out who this Jesus is. And each of the gospel authors take, draw from this oral tradition, right? So they're written later because early on that had been passed around orally. They would have told the stories of Jesus, right? You would have passed around from, from person to person to person what Jesus had said, what he had done. So each of the authors uh, seem to have drawn from the different events of Jesus' life and, and put them in a certain order and arranged them in a certain way to give you a unique picture and a unique perspective of who Jesus is. I think it's a gift that we have for Gospels. Uh, imagine this. Imagine if you, uh, you would get a better picture of who I am, probably. Not only if you just ask my wife who I am, what I'm like, like her description is going to be one thing. If you ask people that work for me, you're probably going to get a slightly different answer. If you ask people that I knew in high school, which you should not, you should not ask those people. They're liars. Uh, you should, but if you ask them, you would get a different picture of who I am and what I've been through. Spiritual confidants and close friends, you would get a different answer, right? You're in, and and as you, if you get to know me and spend time around me, all of these different testimonies of who I am would fill out a better picture of who I am, Yeah? So that's what we get from the Gospels is four different perspectives, four different people trying to tell us, trying to paint this picture of this Jesus. And I think it is awesome. So in some sense, they're kind of like a biography, right? (laughs) Uh, They're telling us who somebody was, except except the difference is is that um, it kind of forces us to make a decision. Right? You read these biographies about who Jesus is, and you have to decide whether you believe it's true or not and what you're going to do with this information. Right? You can dismiss it and say, don't believe any of that. Oh, but if what it says is true, that's going to have implications in your life. It's just unavoidable. If you come to the conclusion that what these books are telling you is true, ugh, like that, that means something, right? And so that's it's how it differs from most biographies. I didn't get to the end of, uh, I didn't get to the end of Bruce Springsteen's uh, biography and feel like I had a choice to make. You know what I mean? You know, it's just like I was like, oh, okay, that's an interesting rock and roll. You know, and so this is uh, what we end up with in these books is something that forces a decision. Matthew's an anonymous. There's nowhere in here. It's like, hey, I'm Matthew. All right, but earliest traditions, best sources we have was written by this tax collector named Matthew that was one of the apostles. This book is highly structured. Like clearly very intentional in the way it's put together. Uh, it starts off with an intro. The first three, four chapters, right, introduce us to this Jesus. It goes through a gene- genealogy, his birth, his baptism, and then his early preparation for ministry. 
And then you fall into uh, uh, Matthew's like five, Matthew five through seven, and you have uh, one of the most significant, the most significant, I believe, teaching uh, that we know of ever, uh, because it's what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and it's Jesus's revelation. It's his teaching. It's his word about what the kingdom of heaven is like, what the kingdom of God's kingdom is like. It's his. his, his he goes about telling everybody, "Here's what kingdom is like." And then in the second section, there's five sections. There's the intro and conclusion, five sections in the middle. That first section is his teaching, Christ's word, and then you have his work, right? What he has done. He has the actual audacity to say this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he goes out and begins to live this out and, and, and bring this into people's lives that are hurting and lost. He brings the kingdom into their life. Unbelievable. So that's the second kind of section. The third section, you really ended up with uh, people's response to Jesus. As he's doing these things, all of a sudden Matthew lists out in this third section all of the different responses to Jesus. And it's just all over the place. And in the fourth section, uh, you have more healings and more miracles, um, but it really focuses heavily on how Christ is going to bring the kingdom of God into the world. Uh, it's fascinating. He begins to teach because everybody has these expectations of what the kingdom is supposed to be like. And Jesus begins to explain to him how he will bring this kingdom in, in, uh, into the world. Uh, and then in the last section, the, the, the fifth section, uh, he, well, it's, he talks about how these kingdoms are going to clash, the kingdom he's bringing and the kingdoms of this world. And they do. They clash in the last section of this book. Uh, there's just this big, big uproar. Uh, and, and then you have the conclusion, his suffering, death, and resurrection. That ends, that's uh, the end of this, of Matthew. That's how Matthew ends. Um, He talks a ton about the kingdom. Matthew talks more than anybody else about God's kingdom. He uses the the, the language of of God's kingdom coming into the world. And he sets it up near the very beginning. Uh, In Matthew 4, uh, he he tells us what Jesus does. Um, After Jesus is baptized and he's tempted in the wilderness, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. Not only does he talk about the kingdom of heaven, just a little bit further, he explains it and describes it this way in verse 23. He went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction from among the people. So not only is he talking about the kingdom, the kingdom is presented to us. Matthew presents the kingdom that Jesus teaches about as the gospel. It's, it's the good news. Right? That's what that word means. If you're collecting nerd words, euangelion, right, is the Greek nerd word. If you've got to know a nerd word, that's a good one to know. Uh, so it's, a, it's, a, but it's the good news. It's this announcement, right? But it's not just any announcement. This, you know what I think it's important for us to understand, um, since it's so central. What did Jesus begin to do? He was teaching, he was preaching the good news, Right? So this, what, is, what does he mean, right? So uh, it goes way, way back, actually. Um, it, its earliest kind of occurrence that we see it really used in Scripture is, is just as an announcement, um, either of defeat or victory. So in 1 Samuel, we, we come across this. It's telling the stories of, of battles. And it says, he who, brought the, uh, he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. So it's this announcement, this news that something has happened, a battle has been lost. But most of the time, it's used about victory. So in 1 Samuel 31, it says, They cut off the head, stripped him of his armor, sent messengers throughout the whole land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. It's an announcement of a victory. It's not just an announcement. It's almost always tied to a royal announcement. 
That makes sense? It has to do something about the king and the kingdom, right? Either a victory's been won and you're still king, or a victory's been lost, a, fight, a battle's been lost and you're not king anymore, right? It's almost always tied in that language. Now, um, it comes up a whole lot in 2 Samuel. It's mentioned like six times in 2 Samuel. It's a story about David. And he's waiting to hear what happened in this battle. His son, um, has, Absalom, has rebelled against him. Uh, and it comes up, Second Samuel 18, 31 is an example. It says, uh, Behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news from my lord the king. The lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. It's announcing to the king, David, that a battle is in one, and he is still king. The revolt hasn't happened any longer. It's these royal announcements. Then Isaiah, and the psalmist too, but the Isaiah, this prophet, this guy comes along later. Um, he takes it into a different place. He takes this, this gospel and he takes it to this, he pl- starts applying it not to just like an announcement, but an announcement about God, right? It's this, it, it, it takes it a whole different place. Uh, so there, what's happened is when, Israel, when Isaiah's writing is, um, Tragedy has struck the nation of Israel. Um, king Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has conquered Jerusalem, where the king is supposed to sit. Not only has he conquered Jerusalem, he's burned the temple. Destroyed it. Uh, uh, Jeremiah tells us about it. He says that um, in the fifth month, uh, on the tenth day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon entered Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all of the houses in Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. This is a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. I mean, if you are God's people and this is God's city, the city of the king, and that's God's house, what just happened, right? A foreign king not only came in to the city of God, God's city knocked down the walls, but he burned God's house. Not only that, he begins to take people that live in the land and export them. And he leaves some there just to take care of some, poor, some of the poorest that says he left in the land to take care of the vines. They take care of the vineyards and stuff just to do work. And you, the people that are left in the city are looking around at what has happened. And you're left with the question, where was God when all this went down? This Babylonian exile is a huge moment in this history of the nation. And you're left with these questions, where is God? Now, Isaiah says in his letter, uh, what happened, all this happened is your own fault, right? Like you wouldn't listen. He tried over and over and over again to tell you and you just wouldn't listen. So he had to send Babylon. Like it's your own doing that this happened is what Isaiah says. But then he makes this crazy and beautiful turn. Uh, In Isaiah 52, he says this, in the fifth month, oh, sorry, that was, I was in the wrong place. Uh, and Isaiah 50, you know what, I didn't write down here. Let's read here. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. There is this announcement. He says, listen, all of this tragedy has come, but guess what? Here comes a messenger. His feet are beautiful because he's bringing good news. 
And the good news this messenger is bringing is not just that God is going to comfort them, not just that God is going to take care of them, but God is going to save them. And not only is he going to save them, he's going to show up himself in some mysterious way. The good news is that God is coming himself. So he says this in Isaiah 60. Show me Isaiah 60, please. A multitude of camels shall, come, uh, shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news to, pray to the praise of the Lord. And then in Isaiah 61, he says this. The Spirit of the Lord God came in upon me because the Lord has anointing to bring me good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah says, listen, You brought this on yourself, but God's not going to abandon you. Not only is he not going to abandon you, he's going to bind you up and he's going to heal you. Not only that, he begins to paint this picture of this person who's going to come, this servant who's going to come, and and he's going to do something about it. In some way, this servant, as he begins to describe him, that the image grows bigger and bigger and bigger, and it says that God himself is going to show up and reign. Unbelievable. This beautiful, beautiful picture of the good news that he paints. So it's not just that it's good news, right? I think we miss something if we think, oh, the gospel's good news. Jesus loves me. Well, that's a fact. Um, but it's not good news just like, you know, it's not like, uh, hey, you win the lottery. Yay. You know, or like whatever happens at, you know, Taco Mama when a bunch of ladies sit down and they like, woo, you know, it's like that's margaritas, not the good news. You know what I mean? It's not, not every announcement is gospel good news. You know what I mean? What, what I'm saying is like, it seems to always be a kingdom announcement. A new king is coming to reign, which is good news if it's a good king. It's bad news if you were the current king. Like if you were the one in charge of everything, controlling thing, and there's an announcement of a new king that is showing up, a new good king is coming, and you think that you are in charge, well, that's not exactly great news, is it? I mean, kings don't often just step aside and go, you know what, you're more qualified for me than me. You should go. That doesn't happen, right? Usually they have to be kicked out or killed. So he says there's a new king is coming. God himself is going to come with this power, and he's going to show up, and he's going to heal, and he's going to do all of these beautiful, beautiful things. But when we get to the end of the Old Testament, um, God has done some amazing things. He's ended the exile. He's brought them back. They've rebuilt the temple. It's a second temple has been built. He's done some of these amazing things. But there's still problems. By the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, there's no king on the throne in Israel. They're still ruled by foreigners, by foreign powers. By the time you get to the Matthew, they haven't heard from a prophet in 400 years. No king, no prophet. And you're really left with the question, what about all those promises? Like, Where is all of the things that you promised? Not only that, where's God? You know? Where is God? And so we get to Matthew 1. 1. It says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, uh, Okay, did you see? Okay, listen. Okay, let me tell you what he did right there. Just at the very beginning, he's he's making claims. He's making claims out of the gate, out of the gate. Matthew's like, I, I, I. So, um, all right, calm down. Calm down, everybody. So Matthew, um, 
Matthew, all the gospel authors, really, but Matthew just goes over the top with this. They see Jesus as a continuation of the story of what God has been doing since the very beginning. This is not a, in their minds and in their writing, this is not any kind of break from the story that precedes it. It's just the logical fulfillment of it. It's not a, a, a detour. It's what we've been looking for and waiting for. So, so Matthew just opens up with this declaration about who he is. This is the title of his book, The Book of the Genealogy of Jesus Christ. All right, so Jesus is his name, right? It's a pretty common name, not an unusual name back then. But he attaches, uh, puts Christ on the end, which if you kind of grew up in the South, maybe you just think that was Jesus' name. It's not. The second one there is, uh, is a title. Christ means uh, the anointed one. It had uh, uh, the messianic expectations. The one that you've been looking for, the one that you've been waiting for, the one that you need, that's who the Messiah is, right? So it has all of these implications of all of the threads in the Old Testament that you're wondering about what's going on. This guy, that's what it says. Call him out of the gate, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And then he ties him specifically to two people. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So um, there are these promises, the two, two of the biggest promises made in, in the Old Testament. Uh, the first one was made to this that I want to talk about was made to this guy, made to this guy Abraham. And, and Abraham's a big deal because God built. God made these promises he, to Abraham. He said, I'm going to build my own nation out of you, and I'm going to do all this stuff. And not only am I going to build a nation, Abraham, i got a plan, and I'm going to, I'm going to work that out through your descendants. And, and so it says in Genesis 12, uh, God talking, he says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'm going to show you. I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. You get to the end of the Old Testament. Where are those promises? Like, how is the whole world being blessed through this nation of Israel and descendants of this man named Abraham? And Matthew says, let me tell you about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's already putting in your mind these promises that he's, he believes and he's going to try to convince you that he fulfills. Second big promise that was made uh, that I want to talk about is in 2 Samuel. It's made to David. David's the second king of Israel. And it says this in 2 Samuel 7. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is God talking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
You get to the end of the Old Testament, where is this promise? There's not even a kingship that they can even track. Where is David on the throne forever? Where is his descendant on the throne forever? And here comes Matthew saying, let me tell you about Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David. Matthew wants us to know that in Jesus we see the continuation of the story of God bringing into the world his blessing. The story that began at the very beginning of God putting everything back together. This is the continuation. This is the fulfillment of all of the promises in this person Jesus is his claim out of the gate. That is bold. Please defend yourself, Matthew. Right? I mean, like this is huge claims that you're going to continue the work. Sounds amazing, by the way. Um, But yeah, big claims. So let's look at what he says. Which, by the way, I just don't know if starting a book with a genealogy is the most uh, engaging way to get your readers in, but that's what he does. So let's just let's, let's run through this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. All right, let's stop right here for a second. When you're reading genealogies or any kind of long lists that don't make a ton of sense to you, you're like, I don't know the names. One of the things that you can do is look for anything that stands out, anything that breaks the rhythm, right? Anything that breaks the rhythm, something the author wanted you to pay attention to. Jacob, the father of Judah, Judah's brothers. So that's a break. We're setting up the line of, of Abraham. Judah, the father of Perez and Tamar, uh, sorry, and Zerah by Tamar. Interesting, including Tamar. Okay. And Judah, the father of Perez by, uh, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadad. Abinadad, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. One break. Next paragraph. And David was the father of Solomon uh, by, the wi- by the wife of Uriah, the Solomon uh, and the father, sorry, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim uh, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Remember we talked about Babylon earlier? Next break. David to Babylon. After the deportation uh, to Babylon, uh, uh, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Abia, and Abia the father of Eliakim. Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim. Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer. Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from the David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, I, I should say this right now. Uh, the 14 generations, I don't, I don't, we don't, there's a lot of, I mean, the nerds get in all kinds of slap fights about the 14. Uh, it, it, but here's what's clear about it. To him, it means something about the continuation, something about fulfillment, that there's 14, because he actually alters the genealogy and leaves people out and kind of telescopes. It's a pretty common thing to do with genealogies back then. He telescopes it to make the point from 14 to 14 to 14 that this is the fulfillment of all of these promises. 
But what's interesting is the things that stand out, these pauses, and who's included and who's not is fascinating. Um, so, for example, um, it's, not un, it's not unheard of to include women in genealogies. Um, it's unusual, but not unheard of. But the women that you would expect to be included in, in a genealogy like this would, be, would have been the patriarchs' wives. Sarah, you know, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah, right? Those are the ones that are mentioned if, they're gonna be, if, if, if women are mentioned in the genealogies. Uh, the ones that are mentioned in this uh, are um, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Bathsheba not even mentioned by name. So here's the interesting thing about that. They're probably all Gentiles, women. Probably all Gentile women. Not from the line, of, not Israelites, but, but brought in. Not only that, I mean, Ruth, we just studied Ruth. Uh, Ruth was a Moabite. She was an outstanding, upstanding, a, a woman of, of, of high, uh, high character. Uh, but she was a Moabite, which the Bible, like early, the Genesis, like early on, sorry, not Genesis, but like, it's just, they don't have nice things to say about Moabites and how they acted. So she's just definitely an outsider included in this list. Not only is she a woman, she's an outsider. The other three, well, at least Tamar and Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute, so she's in here, right? Tamar, if you know the story of Tamar, man, buckle up. I'm not going to tell it now because i got to give a warning before we even talk about it. But Tamar, like, she basically dressed up to trick her father-in-law into getting her pregnant. Like, that's who she is, right? Bathsheba, not mentioned by name. I, d- I don't... I don't believe there's any evidence to point out that she did anything wrong, but she was basically taken by David, who had her husband killed. So she does not look great on David's resume. It looks awful. It's a great evil that David did. And Matthew includes her in this list. Here's why I think that's so interesting. Or here's why I think that's important. Matthew is saying through this genealogy, it's not just the highlights. Matthew's including the outsiders to say this. This message that I'm about to tell you about this Jesus is for everybody. It's for everybody. Jewish, Gentile, it's for saints and it is for sinners. This message that I'm about to tell you about this Christ is for everybody. This kingdom that he is bringing is for you. Unbelievable. You're not excluded from this. Tamar's in there. Rahab's in there. Outsiders are in there. This message is for you. The message is this. God has always and always will work through broken people because that's all he has to work through. The sinners, the outsiders, that's who he works through. Always has and always will. I think so often we just get this picture in our head that this kind of life is for those people over there who are given privilege, who have an opportunity to live right and to act right. It's for them, not for me. And Matthew out of the gate says, no, 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 this is for you. This message that Jesus is going to bring is for you. So this is beautiful. Uh, The good news that he's going to bring into this world, this reign of who God is, the reign of God into these people's lives is this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. Here's the great obstacle to this kingdom, though. 
The great obstacle to this kingdom, in my opinion, uh, in which a full life in the, pleasure, in the, in the presence of God, uh, the gifts of God, that life, this kingdom that is promised, here's the problem with it. It seems insane. Like, what he talks about sounds crazy. Like, the things that he says go against almost all of our instincts. As we get walk through this, he's going to say things like in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 43, he says this. Uh, You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a crazy thing to say out loud. I mean, I know if you grew up in the church, you've heard that before, that you're supposed to love your enemies, but have you done it? Have you tried to do that? It's really, really hard. It's crazy. He not only says that, he tells people that they're supposed to be peacemakers. He says that money is a trap. In Matthew 19, he says this amazing thing. Um, He's teaching, (laughs) this teaching, this guy comes to him, he wants to know more about uh, the kingdom, and, and Jesus says, "Like, hey, you got to go sell everything," because uh, he knows his heart. Uh, and then after, after uh, he tells him, "If you be perfect, go sell everything you possess, give it to the poor." And they heard, and he heard this. He went away sad. Jesus says, to "The disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven." Again, I say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when they heard it, the disciples thought. So, so, when the, so when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, well, who then can be saved? Even his disciples were like, this guy's talking crazy stuff, right? Like, like if God is not favoring the wealthy, then what in the world is happening? Explain to me this world. If the rich aren't favored by God, then who is? The poor? And so... It doesn't make a ton of sense. Our instincts go against this. Living in God's kingdom means forgiving people, putting down the sword. It means seeking peace. It means radical forgiveness. It means radical generosity, taking the things that you were given, maybe you earned, maybe you deserve even, and using them not for your own gain but for the others. I don't know about you, but that goes against every natural instinct I have. Have you ever watched children play? Right? They just come into the world that way. Right? You just come into the world like, I have all of these blocks. And nobody's like, hey, I have extra blo-. No, no, no three-year-olds. Like, I have extra blocks. Who would like some? No. Like, they're mine. Mine. Right? It's just how we come into the world. And so our instincts don't line up with what he says to not retaliate. He says this. In Matthew 19, he says the, the, this. It's unbelievable. This is the second time. He's, he actually says it twice. He actually says it again. Matthew 19.30 says this. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What? What are you talking about? How are the, it's totally backwards from the way that we instinctively see and understand the world. Not retaliating, forgiving those that have hurt you and wounded you deeply, being generous with what you've earned and been given and maybe deserve, to trust and not try to control your life. That's the way to rich and deep life. That, it's against every instinct I have. This week, uh, I had to take my phone to the store to be uh, worked on. It stopped recognizing my face, which is hard to not take personally, by the way. That's just a real, like, it's like, uh, are you Chris? Uh, no, uh, 
uh, you old fatty, you better know the passcode. And I was like, oh, so I had to do this. So I took it, so it turned out, luckily, I felt better. It was a broken, thing broken. So I, I'm leaving, I, I'm pulling in the Apple store to pick my phone up, and somebody is leaving on their phone, cuts in front of me and swerves, and I had to slam on the brakes and lock it up. And I, 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 I'm still thinking about it today. That was like four days ago. And she doesn't even know what happened. My instinct to forgive her, like, so I was telling somebody else about this this week, that it happened, as, just joking around, talking about it. They were like, hey, you don't know. Like, she could have had a bad day. And I went, I hope she was having a bad day. My instincts aren't to forgive and love my enemy. That's a thing that I have to work on. And Jesus says his kingdom is going to involve those types of things. That's just upside down and all kinds of backwards. It doesn't make sense. My dad, uh, when I was little, my, da- uh, my dad was uh, in the Navy. He was a pilot. He flew planes. Actually, he was an instructor. And I remember, I don't know why he told me this story, but I remember him telling me uh, that one of the things that you have to teach pilots is to trust their instruments. He said, you have to teach them to trust your instruments. I said, why? He said, well, sometimes if you're flying, what if you're flying inverted? You're upside down. It's a thing that you sometimes have to do. And you're flying inverted and something happens and you need to go up. You, you get a warning that says you're too close to the ground. Your instinct as a pilot is to pull up. But if you're upside down, that drops you into the ground. I said, like, hold on a second. How do you forget you're upside down? He goes, it happens. If you're upside down long enough, you can forget that you're upside down. You have to teach them to trust your instruments and look around, look at your gauges to tell you where you are and what's going on, or it could kill you. I don't know why he told me that, but I remembered it this week. Because the thing is, is that when life starts going bad, we all have instruments that we check. We all have gauges, right? Mine is, is everybody happy with me? things are going bad, and I start checking my gauges, and I'm like, oh no, people aren't happy with me. And I pull up, but I've been flying upside down this whole time, and I slam into the ground and wonder why my life's not working out. Has anybody ever ever checked your uh, bank account hoping a miracle had happened? Have you ever just like unlocked it, and you're like, I'm gonna look at it, and and just like, just let there be X amount of dollars in there. Please, 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 please. Like it's magic and not math, you know? Like it's it's addition and subtraction. But I do that. I look sometimes, I'm like, please, 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 please. Everything's going to be okay. It's a gauge for me, right? When I'm, which is fine. Here's the deal. And those gauges work just fine as long as, I'm up, as long as I'm right side up. The problem is sometimes life kicks you upside down. And you don't even know it after a while. And everything works fine. And you're looking around at your gauges. And they tell you that you're right side up. And everything's going fine. And you begin. Then things go bad. And you pull up. And your whole life wrecks. And you wonder why. Jesus is giving us all new gauges. He's giving us all new gauges to look around and go like, huh, this is, what's happening? This is not supposed to happen. I, I, I don't have enough money in my bank account. I, this has not happened. People aren't happy with me. The, people are mad with me. It's not ha- what I thought would happen. All these things have gone out of control, and we begin to freak out. And if we look at the wrong gauges, we will destroy everything. And instead, we look at the gospel and says, you know what? Uh, what you should do in this situation is forgive this person. But I don't want to. Trust your gauges. If it's true, trust your gauges. But I am so angry and so bitter and so hurt. Forgive. That's not my instinct. It's the gauges of the gospel, though. Be generous with your money, but I don't want to. I worked hard. Those people didn't. That's sometimes my attitude. I don't want to be generous because I feel like I deserve it more than them. Bible says, I need you to trust your gauges. The problem is, is if you begin to trust your bank account and your money and how much you've earned and how much you deserve, it's going to lead you astray and it's going to wreck your heart. Trust your gauges. 
It's good for you to be generous, to be reminded money will never get a hold of you if you let it flow through your fingers. All of these things he begins to teach are anti most of our instincts. And even if, they, even if our instincts are, are, are lined up on occasion, uh, man, often the motivation is off aim. Trust, learning to trust the gauges. So here's the goal with this, um, with this series. Oh, we're doing great. Uh, here's the goals uh, with this series. Um, I want you and I to see the wisdom of the plan and work of God. As we go through this, as this continuation of God's work in the world, I want you to see the, the wisdom of it. I want us to see if it makes sense of our experience better than the gauges that we are currently using. Yeah? I want us to look at the wisdom and the plan of it. I also want us to see the beauty of it. What God has done and how he has loved us so deeply, I want us to see the beauty and the gift of it. I also want us to read the Gospels rightly. Um, there's wrong ways to read the gospel, uh, Gospels. They're not life hacks. It's a terrible way to read them, right? Looking for just tips, you know, tips and tricks. Nope. Another way to read it uh, is to uh, like overly, or maybe in an unhealthy way, like um, scholarly, right? Like I'm just going to dig into it. I'm going to know, uh, know all the things about it, and I'm going to put it under the microscope, you know? That can be dangerous, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm for studying the Gospels, but it can be dangerous when we begin to judge the Gospel, instead of letting it put us on the exam table and let it lovingly cut us and heal us, because it will. If you're just living your life and Jesus is super happy with you, you're not paying attention, right? Like everything you're doing, Chris, is great. No, it's not. I know it's not, right? He will lovingly cut and heal us. If we, instead of letting, examining it, let it examine us. Now, here's what I also want to say. I am very pro academic pursuing scripture, just not merely, right? Ask hard questions. Part of my shtick in preaching, by the way, if you haven't noticed yet, is to like, I make all these like faces like, oh, like I have a question, right? Like I do that bit. Here's the thing though, like I found that when I have a question and I press into it, when I wrestle with it, I, I come to the other side of, it's always with something more beautiful and more gracious than I ever imagined. So I'm not against wrestling. I just don't want us to stand in judgment of Scripture. We let Scripture stand in judgment of us. It's God's Word. Let it cut us and heal us because we need it. The other thing I don't want us to do, which is so hard, I do it, I've done it my whole life. Um, I don't want us to take it moralistically. Right? I, don't want us to, I don't want us to pursue it as a, it, as a, it's not a moral handbook. It's not the point of it. It's not what it is. Um, here's what I have to do to get in heaven and, and make God not mad at me, right? Uh, if, you, if we do that, if we treat it like a moralistic handbook, like Jesus is a great teacher, um, he has some problems. The first problem you run into is the Old Testament and the New Testament don't fit together when you do that. Yeah, right? I don't know if you've noticed. We'll get into that later. But the Old Testament and New Testament do not fit together if you just treat the New Testament as a moralistic handbook. What you end up doing is looking at this and going, oh, Jesus is great. Like, he's walked around, he's really cool, and he's chilling, he smoked weed and had dinner with people. And you look at the Old Testament and you're like, oh, that guy was mad. We don't like, that's, it doesn't fit together. But that's not what's going on. It's this continuation, this beautiful story. So you, you end up with that problem. The other problem that you end up with is... Um, you end up with a list of rules, um, but no power to change. <laughs> um, or as the uh, theologian uh, Hannah Warren said, 
I thought it was all up to me and it was never going to happen. Yeah, that's what you end up with. Uh, so we don't want to read it moralistically. Um, the other problem you end up with is you end up with no relationship, if you read it that way, right? It's an un- unhealthy relationship. Uh, if you've ever been in a relationship for an extended period of time, I'm sure that you've ended up at a point where one of you looked at the other one and said, just tell me what to say. Three quarters of, into an, three quarters of the way into an argument, one of you says, just tell me what to say and I'll say it. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Right? You just, look, I just need this insanity to end. Right? And I think that I sometimes have in my life wanted relationships, marriage specifically. Like, I just wanted more guidance. Like, I wanted a chart. Right? I wanted a chart that I could find. Like, you know, like you just look up, like, how long has it been since she talked to her mother? Like, did she talk to her friends today? So I can calculate how much this is going to cost me, right? Like, oh, gosh. I just wanted that, right? I wanted this just a formula. Here's the problem with that. That's not a relationship, right? Like, one of I was just looking and saying, like, just tell me what I need to say and do to get out of this situation. I don't even understand what's happening. And she's saying, I want you to be in a relationship with and know me and love me. I, I want you to know me is what she's saying. And I'm saying, I need you just to not be crazy. Which I'm not true. It's not true. But she sees, she's just absolutely right that I, relationship has been, is far more important than me getting out of trouble. And I, when we take the gospel and we make it this moralistic way, we tend to put God in our O. We try to take God and say, like, well, you owe me because I did all these things. <laughs> right? It's not what it is. It's not what's going on. I don't want us to read it moralistically. Um, if it was a moralistic book, that's what the point was, uh, they wouldn't end the way they do. Uh, all the Gospels end with weird death scenes, right? Like weird, gruesome death scenes. If they were just biographies of a great teacher, at least one of them would have left out the embarrassing crucifixion. But they all four, not just don't leave it out, they paint the crucifixion as an enthronement because this is an upside-down world. Like, they do it mockingly, the people that they crucify him. They put a crown on his head. They put a robe on his back. They bow down and fake kneel him, and they exalt him not unto a throne but unto a cross. And every single one of the gospel authors paints this as Jesus' enthronement as king over the entire universe. It's just backwards. It's just upside down. It's so hard for us to figure out and fit in that the way up is the way down. The way up is down. So I want us to read this and see that what is happening. I want us, the right way to read this is not, it's wrong to read it moralistic, moralistically. The right way is to read it about making claims about who Jesus is. Earth-shattering claims that will definitely affect the way that we live if we believe he's true. it's true. It will definitely lead to moral changes in our life, but it's not a moral handbook. It's about claims about who Jesus is and what he has done. Uh, and it's leading us to trust him, to trust what he says to trust who he is and to trust what he has accomplished instead of what we can accomplish. It's a book that leads us to increased faith, like all of scripture does. Increased trust in him. That is what I want. So here's what I want you to do. Pray. As we enter in this study of Matthew, pray that God will transform you.
that he will make you different, that he will increase your capacity to love and increase your capacity for joy and, and patience and kindness and goodness and mercy and all of the things that the Spirit does in our life when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and we stop trying to earn and we stop time trying to control. Pray and ask for that, re- that, that transformation. Second thing, read. You don't have to wait for me to read it to you. You can read it too. You should read it too. Read through Matthew. Read through it multiple times. We're gonna, uh, we have some people that are going to put together study questions in for use in the small groups and outside of the small groups. Uh, discuss in your small groups. I'm going to try to put additional resources into your hands that either show you where I am, where I'm thinking and, and what's shaping my, and influencing me, uh, but also additional resources that, that, that can take you uh, further devotionally. I'm going to try to put all of those things in your hand over the time that we are in Matthew. So what I want for you to do is to see the beauty, to see the brilliance, to see the goodness of Christ, even though our instincts say, how can letting go be the thing to do? How can trusting, how can coming to him with nothing be the right way? And just see that his kingdom is just so upside down, that we've been flying upside down so long that we don't even recognize what right side, right way up is anymore. And that's what Jesus has come to reveal to us. Here's how the universe works. Trust him. This is where faith comes, yeah? Let's pray. Father, what a gift your scriptures are. What a gift to study and to know what you are like. What an amazing thing that you've revealed yourself to us, who you are and what you were like in a book, that you came yourself so we could see what God is like. God is like what Jesus is like. What an amazing gift. So my prayer is, as we walk through uh, Matthew's telling uh, of the story of your life, of, of, of Christ's life, uh, of the story of the kingdom being brought into this world through Christ. The, the, the kingdom begins to work itself out in new ways in my thinking. That it begins to work itself out in new ways of feeling in my being. That not just in mine, but in, in my families and in the church. Because you've not only brought this kingdom, but you have sent us as emissaries. You've sent us to bring this kingdom in other people's lives as we tell them about what you were like, as we tell them about the gospel, the great announcement that there is a king bringing a kingdom and its rule is beautiful. And there's places in my heart where I am, there's so many I know, I find new ones all the time, reluctant to get off the throne. Depose me. Kick me off of my need to control, my need to manage. Because you and your good reign is so much better than mine. Holy Spirit, work in our lives and change us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.